Welcome to Global Yoga Flow Podcasts. In this podcast, we ask the question, is our consciousness independent of our brain and body? Or is it some biochemistry in the brain that is producing the flow of consciousness that we experience as our awareness, as our personalities? This question has long been a standing point between the worlds of science and the worlds of spirituality. Those in the scientific world believe that it is the biochemistry, the activity of the neocortex in our brain that creates the stream of thought and emotion that is our consciousness, our personality. Those in the spiritual world mostly agree that our consciousness is completely independent of the flow of the brain and the aliveness of the body. That is, in the spiritual world, most believe that our consciousness is independent of this life and will go on in different dimensions after we die. Many people who have had near-death experiences report their consciousness having a journey, an experience completely independent of their bodies. Now in the scientific world, doctors tend to refute this by saying the neocortex has a delicate balance and if you deprive it of any of its essentials, oxygen being one of them, then all kinds of experiences that are strange and odd will happen to the human being. In other words, science is explaining through brain chemistry these near-death journeys of consciousness. Well, something revelatory has happened recently, and I'm going to share that with you in this podcast. A neurosurgeon, Dr. Eben Alexander, had an experience of losing the functionality of his neocortex for seven days while he was in a coma. Now, he was of the scientific mind, believing that consciousness is a result of the brain's biochemistry, in particular the neocortex. I'm going to read to you his article. It's really changing the way that the worlds of science and spirituality are melding and understanding how they're intermixed. Here's Dr. Alexander's article. He writes, As a neurosurgeon, I did not believe in the phenomena of near-death experiences. I grew up in a scientific world, the son of a neurosurgeon. I followed my father's path and became an academic neurosurgeon, teaching at Harvard Medical School and other universities. I understand what happens to the brain when people are near death. And I had always believed that there were good scientific explanations for the heavenly out-of-body journeys described by those who narrowly escaped death. The brain is an astonishingly sophisticated but extremely delicate mechanism. Reduce the amount of oxygen it receives by the smallest amount and it will react. It was no big surprise that people who had undergone severe trauma would return from their experiences with strange stories. But that didn't mean that they had journeying, journeyed anywhere real. Or did it? Although I considered myself a faithful Christian, I was so more in name than in actual belief. I didn't begrudge those who wanted to believe that Jesus was more than a simple good man who had suffered at the hands of the world. 
I sympathize deeply with those who wanted to believe that there was a God somewhere out there who loved us unconditionally. In fact, I envied such people, the security of those beliefs, no doubt. In the fall of 2008, however, after seven days in a coma, during which the human part of my brain, the neocortex, was inactive, I experienced something so profound that it gave me a scientific reason to believe in consciousness after death. I know how pronouncements like mine sound to skeptics, so I'll tell my story with the logical language of the scientific mind. Very early one morning, four years ago, I awoke with an extremely intense headache. Within hours, my entire cortex, the part of the brain that controls thought and emotion, and that, in essence, makes us human, had shut down. Doctors at Lynchburg General Hospital in Virginia, a hospital where I myself worked as a neurosurgeon, determined that I had somehow contracted a very rare bacterial meningitis that mostly attacks newborns. E. coli bacteria had penetrated my cerebrospinal fluid and were eating my brain. When I entered the emergency room that morning, my chances of survival in anything beyond a vegetative state were already low. They soon sank to near non-existent. For seven days, I lay in a deep coma, my body unresponsive, my higher order brain functions totally offline. Then on the morning of my seventh day in the hospital, as my doctors weighed whether to discontinue treatment, my eyes popped open. There is no scientific explanation for the fact that while my body lay in a coma, my mind, my consciousness, my inner self was alive and well. While the neurons of my cortex were stunned to complete inactivity by the bacteria that had attacked them, my brain-free consciousness journeyed to another larger dimension of the universe, a dimension I had never dreamed existed, in which the old pre-coma me would have been more than happy to explain as a simple impossibility. But that dimension in rough outline, the same one described by countless subjects of near-death experiences and other mystical states, it's there. It exists. And what I saw and learned there has placed me quite literally in a whole new world. A world where we are much more than our brains and bodies, and where death is not an ending of consciousness, but rather a new chapter in a vast and incalculably positive journey. I'm not the first person to have discovered evidence that consciousness exists beyond the body. Brief, wonderful glimpses of this realm are as old as human history. But as far as I know, no one before me has ever traveled to this dimension A, while their cortex was completely shut down, and B, while their body was under minute medical observation, as mine was for the full seven days. All the chief arguments against near-death experiences suggest that these experiences are the results of minimal, transient, or partial malfunctioning of the cortex. My near-death experience, however, took place not while my cortex was malfunctioning, but while it was completely shut off. This is clear from the severity and duration of my meningitis and from the global cortical involvement documented by CT scans 
and neurological examinations. According to current medical understanding of the brain and the mind, there is absolutely no way that I could have experienced even a dim and limited consciousness during my time in the coma, much less the hyper-vivid and completely coherent odyssey that I underwent. It took me months to come to terms with what had happened to me. Not just the medical impossibility that I had been conscious during my coma, but more importantly, the things that happened during that time and on that journey. Toward the beginning of my adventure, I was in a place of clouds, big, puffy, pink-white clouds that showed up sharply against a deep blue-black sky. Higher than the clouds, immeasurably higher, flocks and flocks of transparent, shimmering beings arced across the sky, leaving long, streamer-like lines behind them. Were they birds? Angels? These words registered later when I was writing down my recollections, but neither of these words do justice to the beings, which were quite simply different from anything I have ever known on this planet. They were more advanced higher forms. A sound, huge and booming, like a glorious chant, came down from above, and I wondered if the winged beings were producing it. Again, thinking about it later, it occurred to me that the joy of these creatures as they soared along was such that they had to make the noise, that if the joy didn't come out of them in this way, then they would simply not otherwise be able to contain it. The sound was palpable and almost material, like rain that you can feel against your skin, but doesn't leave you wet. Seeing and hearing were not separate in this place where I was. I could hear the visual beauty of the beings. And I could see the surging, joyful perfection of what they sang. It seemed that you could not look at them or listen to anything in this world without becoming part of it, without joining with it in some mysterious way. Again, from my present perspective, I would suggest that you couldn't look at anything in this world at all, for the word at itself implies a separation that just didn't exist there. Everything was distinct, yet everything was also part of the whole, like the rich and intermingled designs of a Persian carpet or a butterfly's wing. It gets stranger still. For most of my journey, someone else was with me, a woman. She was young, and I remember what she looked like in complete detail. She had high cheekbones, deep blue eyes, golden brown tresses, and a lovely face. When first I saw her, we were riding along together on an intricately patterned surface, which after a moment I recognized was the wing of a butterfly. In fact, millions of butterflies were all around us, vast fluttering waves of them, dipping down into the woods and coming back up and around us again. It was a river of life and color moving through the air, and we were part of it. The woman's outfit was simple, like a peasant's, but its colors, powder blue, indigo, and pastel orange, peach, they had the same overwhelming, super vivid aliveness that everything else had. She looked at me with a look that, 
if you saw it for just five seconds, would make your whole life up to that point worth living, no matter what had happened so far. It was not a romantic look. It was not a look of friendship. It was a look that was somehow beyond all of these, beyond all the different compartments of love that we have down here. It was something higher, holding all those other kinds of love within itself, while at the same time being much bigger than all of them. Without using any words, she spoke to me. The message went through me like a wind, and I instantly understood that it was true. I knew so in the same way that I knew the world around us was real. This wasn't some fantasy passing and ins insubstantial. Her message had three parts. And if I had to translate them into earthly language, I'd say they ran something like this. You are loved and cherished dearly forever. You have nothing to fear and you can do no wrong. The message flooded me with a vast and crazy sensation of relief. It was like being handed the rules to a game I'd been playing all my life without fully understanding. We will show you many things, she said to me, again without words, but eventually you'll go back. To this, I was confused and I asked a question. Go back, go back where? A warm wind blew there, like the kind that springs up in the most perfect summer day, tossing the leaves and in the trees and flowing past like heavenly water, a divine breeze. It changed everything, shifting the world around me into a higher octave, an even higher vibration. Although I still had little language function, at least as we think of it on earth, I began wordlessly putting questions to this wind and to the divine being that I sensed at work behind or within it. Where is this place? Who am I? Why am I here? Each time I silently put one of these questions out, the answer came instantly in an explosion of light and color and love and beauty that blew through me like a crashing wave. What was important about these blasts was they didn't simply silence my questions by overwhelming me. They answered them, but in a way, again, that bypassed language. Thoughts entered me directly, but it wasn't thought like we experience on earth with categories and structure or abstraction. These thoughts were solid and immediate, clear, hotter than fire and wetter than water. And as I received them, I was able to instantly, effortlessly understand concepts that would have taken me years to grasp. I continued moving forward and found myself entering an immense void completely dark, inky black, infinite in size, and yet also infinitely comforting. Pitch black as it was, it was brimming over with light, a light that seemed to come from a brilliant orb that I now sensed was near to me. The orb was an interpreter between me and the void, the void surrounding me. It was as if I were being born into a larger world, 
and the universe itself was like a giant cosmic womb. The orb, which I sensed was somehow connected with or even identical to the woman on the butterfly wing, the orb was guiding me through it. Later, when I went back, I found a quotation by the 17th century Christian poet Henry Vaughan, and it came close to describing this magical place, this vast inky black core that was the home of the divine itself. The quote goes like this, there is, some say, in God, a deep but dazzling darkness. And that was it exactly, an inky darkness that was also full to brimming with light. I know full well how extraordinary, how frankly unbelievable all this may sound to you. Had someone, even a doctor, told me a story like this before the coma, I would have been quite certain that they were under the spell of some delusion. But what happened to me was, far from being delusional, as real or more real than any event in my life, and that includes my wedding day and the birth of my two sons. What happened to me begs for explanation. Modern physics tells us that the universe is based on unity, the unified field theory of Einstein. It's undivided. Though we seem to live in a world of separation and difference, physics tells us that beneath the surface, every object and event in the universe is interwoven. Before my experience, these ideas were abstractions. Today, I feel them as reality. Not only is the universe defined by unity, I also know now its basis is love. The universe, as I experienced it in my coma, I have come to see with both shock and joy is the same one that both Einstein and Jesus were speaking of in their different ways. I've spent decades as a neurosurgeon at some of the most prestigious medical institutions in our country. I know that many of my peers hold, as I myself did, to the theory that the brain, and in particular the cortex, generates consciousness and that we live in a universe devoid of any kind of emotion, much less the unconditional love that I now know as source energy and the universe. But that belief, that theory, now lies broken at my feet. What happened to me destroyed it, and I intend to spend the rest of my life investigating the true nature of consciousness and making the fact that we are much more than our physical brains and bodies as clear as I can, both to my fellow scientists and to the human family at large. I don't expect this to be an easy task for the reasons I described above. When the castle of an old scientific theory begins to show fault lines, no one wants to pay attention at first. The old castle simply took too much work to build in the first place, and if it falls, an entirely new one will have to be constructed in its place. I learned this firsthand after I was well enough to get back onto the world and talk to other people. That is, other than my long-suffering wife, Holly, and our two sons. To talk to others about what happened to me. The looks of polite disbelief, especially among my medical friends, soon made me realize what a task I would have getting people to understand the enormity of what I had seen and experienced that week while my brain was shut down.
One of the few places I didn't have trouble getting my story across was a place I'd seen fairly little of before my experience, church. The first time I entered a church after my coma, I saw everything with fresh eyes. The colors of the stained glass windows recalled the luminous beauty of the landscapes I'd seen in the worlds above, beyond. The deep bass notes of the organ reminded me how thoughts and emotions in that world were like waves moving through me. And most important, a painting of Jesus breaking bread with his disciples evoked the message that lay at the heart of my journey, that we are dearly loved and accepted unconditionally by source energy, by God, even more grand and unfathomable, glorious than the one I'd learned as a child in Sunday school. Today, many believe that the living spiritual truths of religion have lost their power and that science, not faith, is the road to truth. Before my experience, I strongly accepted this. But I now understand that such a view is far too simple. The plain fact is that the materialistic picture of the body and brain as the producer rather than the vehicle of human consciousness is doomed. It just doesn't make sense. In its place, a new view of mind and body will emerge, and in fact, is emerging already. This view is scientific and spiritual in equal measure, and will value what the greatest scientists of history themselves always valued above everything else. Universal truth. This new picture of reality will take a long time to put together. It won't be finished in my time, or even, I suspect, in my son's. In fact, reality is too vast, too complex, too irreducibly mysterious for a full picture of it to ever be absolutely complete. It will always be unfolding. But in essence, it will show the universe as evolving, multidimensional, and known down to its every last atom by a source energy, by a God who cares for us even more deeply, more fiercely than any parent has ever loved a child.